Hello and welcome. <laughs> Mouse, penis, brain, personality. No, hold on. Do the whole do the whole thing again and repeat your exciting hitchin. <laughs> because I mean, it's never been from hitchin before, and that's the, that's the main thing. Hello, listener, and welcome to this this episode of private practice podcast you will not believe it but i've just managed to record at least three minutes with james without ever pressing the go button james is so stunned by my stupidity (laughs) he can't say anything all right maybe we should um maybe we should start that one again james what do you reckon now this is something like the fourth time we've done this mm-hmm. so the, 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 there's just two okay. things you need to okay. say your name and where you are so far you've managed to do where you are yeah. and then i jokingly said my name first because because it was hilarious and then <laughs> I, and then i and then you said i don't know, and then and then i and then you said and then i said so so far i've managed to say one of the two things and you've managed to say one of the two things so we've both failed on 50% of it i mean it's good we've only been doing this for 5 years so take 4 Hello, listener, and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. My name is Daniel P. Brown, and I'm recording in the Private Practice Podcast studio in Hitchin, near Luton. Well, yeah, okay, good. You got you managed to get all the words in that time, uh-huh. except the, the most exciting bit, uh-huh. the thing that's different to every other episode up until now, is the location. And you said that in a sort of like monotonous. You said that as if it was the thing that's never changed, as if that's the thing that you've come to expect. And I'm just saying, going through the motions as usual, business as usual. I still think that this is this is what this is what the listeners want to hear. Okay, welcome to the private practice podcast from Hitchin near Luton, and I'm in Casablanca for uh, the private. Uh, and then now I can't even. Now you you just got yours Yawn. perfect, and I can't even think what I'm Yawn. supposed to say. Now. I'm my name's James Hall. I'm in the private practice podcast studio in Casablanca, Morocco. Yawn. And do you know what? I didn't actually say I'm Daniel P. Brown. So what you want me to do again? Take five. Hello, listener, and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. I'm Daniel P. Brown, and I'm recording from the Hitchin Private Practice Podcast Studio near Luton. And I'm perfectly happy with the take that I just did. And so uh-huh. the regular listener will be pleased to hear that Dan is back with a voice this yep. week because last time, uh, in fact, this is I'm now speaking to you, Dan, not you, dear listener. Did you hear the episode that I put out last time? I haven't yet. I've been very, very busy. Okay, but I mean, it simultaneously proves two things. One, that Dan is is superfluous. The 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 the, the professionalism, interest, and everything you've come to know and love about this podcast can be completely sustained without Dan. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, right now, I'm proving the opposite of that, which is that. Um, even like, even with that now being a reality and not a hypothetical, um, I'm satisfied that here I am coming back to talk to Dan. So you can f- 
feel reassured that you're not ditched. Thanks, James. That, that really means a lot to me. <laughs> um, so, so how, how was how was COVID? Uh, COVID, <laughs> it, it, it was pretty nasty, actually. I mean, it wasn't really worse than the terrible cold, perhaps on the flu side of cold, shivers and sweats and some sleepless nights and then some very, very sleepy afternoons, feeling quite doped a lot of the time, very, very sore, painful throat. Eventually, my throat and voice just gave up the ghost, and I couldn't speak for a good few days. Um, a lot of laying in bed and laying around the house, feeling very miserable for about 10 days, two weeks, and then um, then started to recover and feel a lot better, and um, I think I'm almost there now. Still a bit blocked up, though. Um, and definitely there's some changes to kind of like your your general sense of well-being that are kind of intangible and undescribable or indescribable. And um, But yeah, yeah, I think I'm on the mend now, but uh, it wasn't fun. It was not fun at all. And here is where I would respond appropriately if I actually learnt anything from the last time we talked about this in Small Talk. But moving on, because I haven't, tell me briefly about your holiday before you were ill. Oh, fantastic, James. Thanks for asking. So I went to Spain. We went to um, Alicante. Um, we saw friends. We ate a lot of tapas. We tried various seafood dishes. We went to one of those gastronomic teatrical restaurants. That wasn't Spanish or French, I don't think. But it was one of those restaurants where they, like, you know, pour hot molten lava onto a tea bag made of wheatgrass, which is floating above a cloud of um, um, egg-flavoured sulphur whiff, um, whilst they stab you in the back with a breadstick. It was really good fun. We did that. We went into the sea quite a lot. We drank quite a lot. Um, went to a few restaurants and just generally hung out Got a little bit suntanned and a little bit sunburnt, drank a few cocktails and had a wonderful time. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to also give the listeners some context this week. That I will quite happily acknowledge that Dan is absolutely right when he says, when he get like, basically, when we're recording um, separately like this, and I'm looking at Dan on a screen. If I set up the private practice studio to be facing the microphone, doing, making, thinking about the sound, just basically just thinking about you, the listener, mm -hmm. and then Dan is kind of a corner of a screen behind me. I'm not even looking at him. He gets rightfully indignant because mm -hmm. it is important when you're having a conversation to uh, actually pay attention to the other person's face. And now that I've got into the habit of setting it up so that I'm always looking at Dan, he's put some ridiculous setting on the screen so that we're both behind a rock in the same thing. And, and the sun is obviously coming through your window because you're, you're either half of you is completely washed out and white and the other half is completely in shadow. And for some reason, you're in the background and I'm in the foreground. So I'm just looking, I'm talking to myself, listening to myself and seeing myself. Do you know what? I mean, I understand all that you said there, but actually it's very difficult to get the lighting right in this room. I'm in a hotel suite. Actually, it's probably not a suite. Although she did say it was a family suite, but where you'd put your family, I don't know. There's not really enough room in here for me. It's, it's a perfectly adequate hotel, but the lighting is... It's actually how I like it, but it's not good for recording. It's not good for, it's not good for film and TV, James, like this. 
No, I wouldn't say the lighting is the main issue. I'd say the main issue is that most of my screen is full of trees and rocks because you've applied a filter. Wait, you're still on that? Yes. Oh, James, I took that off ages ago. You need to go to view in the top right-hand corner and go to... <laughs> OK, you're filling my screen now. That's OK. So, tell me about why you're in Hitchin. OK, so I'm on a course this week, and the course is all about... Um, continuous improvement, which is something that the NHS has to do as a kind of business as usual. But continuous improvement is really all about enabling things to happen um, better, faster, and more cost effectively. So what I'm trying to do is learn enough that I can go back to my organization. So it's a business course, in essence, and use that, implement that so that actually my small corner of the NHS is working more effectively, is more consistent, and actually we get improved results for less money. Um, it's really interesting. Okay, I'm going to rephrase the question. Tell me an interesting story about why you're in Hitchin. What the fuck? <laughs> because yesterday you said to me, oh, I'm not going to tell you anything about this because oh, I've got some really good stories for small talk. And now I ask you what you're doing in Hitchin and you basically gave me, it sounds like we're in a, an industrial estate in Milton Keynes in a boardroom and you've come to present your boring PowerPoint presentation and I asked the appropriate small talk question at the start to mm -hmm. introduce the session and you give yeah. the, off the top of your head an appropriate but utterly dreary answer and that's exactly mm. what you've just done and yesterday you gave the impression that you were going to be like you were going to you were going to be making your way through all these stories and re and I'd have to to step in and say okay well I, I'm really enjoying these stories but that's about all we've got time for because we've got other things to talk about whereas instead of that you just gave a story that was about as exciting as the wall and the curtains behind you that's really unfair and actually quite unkind i thought that was a perfectly reasonable quick story about you know what's going What's going on here in Hitchin? Apparently you played a game yesterday called Mortgage or something and fun was had by all. And I'm doubtful as to whether fun had by all will translate into a compelling anecdote now. But now that you've lowered, suitably lowered our expectations... <laughs> at, at, at the time, James, I was, you know, buzzing because we played this, you know, business game and I thought it was good and maybe it's not as exciting now as it was yesterday, so... What can I do? You know, what, what can I do? I'm, I'm sorry. I can just apologise. Why? Okay, well, that was what, small what, talk. No, 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 that's not small talk, James. That's, that's my half of the bargain done, and apparently not properly. It's, <laughs> what news have you got? What's been going on in your life? Like, what exciting things do you have to tell the listener? Absolutely nothing. Um, time in Morocco is coming to an end, and... Oh, I mean, since I last spoke to you, uh, we did have a visitor. Oh, right. Who came? My mum. Oh, yeah, that's the only person that actually visits you anymore, isn't it? And we went to Marrakesh. And mm -hmm. um, I wonder if there's an anecdote from Marrakesh. No, not really. Oh, actually, no, there is a story. Um... I uh, I said that I was 
that, that I'd picked somewhere to go for dinner when we got back and we were back in Casablanca. And um, we set off walking through the wasteland behind the building here. And um, and she's all she's got she's got a clutch in her hand and she's all dressed up for dinner and she's got um, open shoes. And Sammy is saying, oh, firstly, I'm not sure open shoes are a good idea in Casablanca. You never know what terrain or unidentified objects you're going to be making your way through. And then he was very sceptical of the um, the journey that I had uh, decided on, which was to walk through the wasteland and into the local neighbourhood and get a bus. And... Um, instead of taking a taxi because of, for all sorts of reasons. And um, so we walk through the wasteland. We get on the bus. It's all fine. The, the, um, it wasn't particularly busy. We all sat down. We get to as close as it was possible to get to the restaurant. And mm-hmm. then we just walk the final bit. But this is one thing that I'm often guilty of, which is sort of like walking the final bit can often turn into a half-hour walk through terrain that is heavy with obstacles. And this was no different. So we were walking basically through a crowded night market with with carts covered in onions and mm-hmm. watermelons and stuff. And there's thousands of people. It's dark. I mean, it's, it's, it's lit, but, it, I mean, it's after dark. And... Um, it's kind of chaotic. There are donkeys, there are cats, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are um, stray dogs, cockroaches, you name it. Mm, and nice. we're walking, and, and, and I'm the only person who knows where we're going and where it is. And, uh, and I'm wearing sensible footwear that doesn't have open toes, mm-hmm. open toes. And I'm not carrying a clutch and I'm not, ex- I'm not particularly. Fancily dressed up. Oh, you're also anyway, not a retired pensioner, so there's that as well. Yes, there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we get to the restaurant, everyone survives, nothing goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm satisfied that that's every mm-hmm. box ticked, would do again. <laughs> and it, the restaurant that I've chosen is just everything that my that, that my mum was hoping for. It's sort of like a... Uh, it's a recreation of this, the main scene from the 1940s film, Casablanca. Oh, and they've taken fun. this old Riyadh and they've done it up in Art Deco style and it's all very fancy and they've got a live band and sure enough, they play As Time Goes By every night. And the food was fantastic and everything went well and it was mm-hmm. delicious. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's great. I mean, I was worried for a moment there that you were going to recreate some kind of Boarfest story, maybe like I did just now, uh, maybe roles reversed. Um, like your, you remember your story where you got a wet foot? <laughs> um, if you've been listening to Private Practice Podcasts along with us for a few years, you might remember an episode where James spent half an hour telling a story about when he got a wet foot on a bike. It was the Christmas special in 2018. It was a great story, but uh, also at the same time utterly boring um, with no real punchline. Unless I got a wet foot was the punchline. Was that the punchline? Oh, no, because no, I no, don't no, wear no, wine no, no, tasting. No, 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 no,
You've just told okay. them where they can access that story. Them. You've just told no, they our can't listener. because I think that's an archived episode. They won't be able to access it unless they request it. Well, if you request it, we will send you access to that episode. Um, anyway, great small talk, James. You've really excelled today. I think perhaps because I'm so businessed out from my business course, I'm learning so much, and the mortgage game was just so overwhelmingly fun. Um, perhaps uh, my recreation of it as a story was never going to be any good. Okay, should we just do a little breathing exercise to transition from small talk to the subject of the episode? Yes. Are you going to lead it, James? Yes. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Am I meant to be holding? And out through your mouth. And once more, into the nose. Okay, so if the listener is reading along with us, if you turn to the contents page, you'll notice that we took three episodes to get through chapter one, (laughs) the only chapter of part one. And so now we're racing through, we're skipping two chapters of part two, and we're going to what we know about psychotherapy objectively and subjectively. And page 61, back when he was a student, Dan once again helpfully underlined various things and numbered them in the, in the, um, the gutter of the book. And the first thing that he underlined was the word congruence, and he wrote a number one next to it. Take it away, Dan. <laughs> okay, um, I discovered that if I turn my chair the other way there, listener, we wouldn't get the blinding light ruining James's view of the still recovering from COVID, slightly overweight, unshaven me. Um, so I didn't hear whether he said that we are exploring the wonderful world of Carl Rogers, one of the most... One of the most well-known uh, psychologists, uh, he's the therapist's therapist. He is a man of the people, he's an educator, and he is an absolute darling. Um, and what we're looking at is some of the themes, ideas, and topics that are kind of have rippled throughout uh, psychotherapy uh, since this guy started working and publishing his findings. Um, and the chapter which James did mention is called... What we know about psychotherapy. So, in other words, these theories of um, uh, uh, all the things that we've spoken about in the first three episodes, can, uh, can, can they be put into practice in order to help someone who has all kinds of problems with any kind of predictable result, or is it just totally um, down to certain conditions that may or may not be present and therefore it's a throw of a dice as to whether any of this will have any impact whatsoever in the real world on anyone other than Carl Rogers in the 1940s. I think the answer is going to be yes. (laughs) Um, An aside or something excuse me, to highlight at this stage is that psychotherapy, uh, one-to-one therapy um, and group therapy 
is notoriously hard to prove effective. It's notoriously hard to study something that is so personal and individual, um, both from the therapist uh, in terms of the delivery, you know, of the sort of theoretical therapeutic framework in a therapy context. I hope that makes sense. Um, and also for the individual who's in therapy, it's, it's, it's very personal, it's, it's individual, it's unique, it moves at a different pace for everyone. The, the content and the feel of the sessions are quite um, unique. Um, obviously, there'll be some similarities for, for many, many people. Um, so it's very difficult to then prove that what is happening in the therapy room is the thing that helps someone change is the thing that is effective in improving mood or helping that person engage in communicative practices with their loved ones or, you know, or helping that person um, uh, to diminish some of the symptoms and effect of mental illness. So it's a really difficult area to study. It's a really difficult area to research. It's a really difficult area. And when Carl Rogers was writing his book and his papers on these topics... He was really trying to do something that was only in its infancy, and that was give kind of empirical evidence uh, about the effectiveness. Uh, excuse me, about the effectiveness of psychotherapy. But would you say that he was taking a the, um, a um, method? Okay, would you say that he was taking a method and repeating it as many times as possible until it didn't work? And he was seeing it work and work and work and work and saying it's still working, it's still working, it's still working, let's try it the hundredth time, let's try it the thousandth time, it's still working, no failures yet. And then potentially he gets to the two thousandth time and it fails and potentially every time after that it fails. So therefore, um, he just, like, stranger things have happened, he just got lucky 1,999 times um, and that luck has just was just never going to repeat itself again and ultimately all his ideas were wrong or he actually had something that has some fundamental truth behind it and the reason that he gets to a success 1,999 times is because it's always successful and the 2,000th will be successful as will the 2 millionth, etc. Or do you think that however many times he, he'd um, practised the method, what he decided was necessary was to strip out, if possible, all the variables and see if anything was consistent. So, for example, if you have a method and you try it 2,000 times, rather than just thinking, either I got lucky 2,000 times, I hope I get lucky for the next 2,000, or assuming mm. I got mm -hmm. lucky 2,000 times, therefore I will get lucky for the next 2,000, rather than doing that, strip out everything that was variable like for example um this person was talking about her marriage this person was talking about a relationship with his brother this person was dealing with grief you strip out all the different things um strip out this this person is a woman this person's a man this person's in his 60s this person's in her teens strip out variables uh -huh. of age and all that and what you come down to is a set uh, is a method where everything described in the method applies to every single patient despite all of their individual differences and then you can say 
I have distilled this method into something that we can consider objectively. So there was a question in that. Yeah. Was it A or B? A being, I'm just throwing the dice and seeing how many times I get lucky. B being, I, am, I have come up with a theory, but in order for it to be of any use to anyone other than me, I need to strip out anything that might be considered luck and to see if there is something that is consistent amongst all the variation? It's a good question. Um, I, I think... Uh, I, 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 I don't think he was trying to find out whether what he was doing was luck, and I think what he was trying to do was find some of the core behaviours of a therapist or the core ideas that a, a therapist needs to hold in mind or practice in order to have the most likely chance of positive outcomes for the person in therapy. So in essence, he was, he was, develop, he was developing ideas based on his experience and then hoping that in future research and as you know, the science or the field progresses, you'd be able to prove these more effectively or, in, or perhaps give, a, give instruction really in a narrative form or in a kind of um, classroom setting maybe, that, that would enable people to replicate some of the more positive outcomes by implementing some of these ideas that he had. It wasn't as easy as it being an exact technique because each person in the room is individual and everyone's experiences are different and the way that they process them and manage them is also, and experience them, is, are very different. So he came up with ideas. Yeah, okay, well, you, as you continue to paddle it out into the open waters there you basically just stirred up all the silt and mud and confused the whole thing for me so whilst i was following everything that you said basically you 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 came to a position at the end that was kind of like he he had ideas that where he was basically just making stuff up and in his writings, he was saying, here's some stuff I've made up. And I hope that one day in the future, probably after my death, this will be useful for people who continue my work, who may be able to actually prove something objective about it rather than it just being my observations. Yeah, and he had every right to be confident in his observations because they repeated over time. But that that just goes back to my first example. What if he was lucky two thousand times because of chance, and then after that, not lucky? Well, you're also um, you're getting into the the area of statistical significance. And if someone implements something two thousand times under the same circumstances in somewhat controlled conditions and it's replicated again and again and again and the outcome is the same, then I'd say that that is pretty damn good evidence that this works. If that was then to flip into 2001 time and then it started to not work or stopped working and then continued like that for another 2000 I'd be more interested in researching what had changed. Um, but anyway, we are veering off topic somewhat... Um, <laughs> okay, so so what what are these ideas that may or may not work two thousand times, starting well, with congruence? <laughs> th thank you, James. That's really good for you to bring it back to congruence. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to read a little section, if I may, from Carl Rogers' 
what we know about psychotherapy. It has been found that personal change is facilitated when the psychotherapist is what he is, when in the relationship with his client he is genuine and without front or facade, openly being the feelings and the attitudes which at that moment are flowing in him. Uh, so they coined the term congruence, blah, 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 blah. By congruence, we mean that the feelings the therapist is experiencing are available to him, available to his awareness, and he's able to live these feelings, to be them, and able to communicate them if appropriate. Congruence. And that was probably one of the things that, I mean, <laughs> reading this book, that was one of the things that stood out for me personally, not just because it was nice to hear someone else talk about it um, to me as opposed to it being a discovery from within. But I mean, let, let me just cut to the chase. When I was a kid, I had no idea that that people could uh, read my expressions, that people could... That I thought that basically everything I was thinking was a total closely guarded secret and I could just chew I was in complete control of the um the curation of how I exhibited myself to the world so there so let me just give you a perfect example when I was probably about 10 I was lying in the dentist chair and the dentist gave me a mirror and for several years before this, I'd not been cleaning my teeth properly. And so it was all kind of like disgusting, basically. Like just, I was on the, at one point I was sort of like heading towards gum disease and the, the um, dentist managed to mm -hmm. turn it around and mm -hmm. everything has been fine ever since. And so he's holding this, I'm, he's making me hold this mirror and say, look, here's how you clean your teeth. And he's sort of scrubbing away. And I, in my head, I'm in, in the fortress that I think is completely walled and guarded and he has no access to. I'm thinking to myself, well, obviously, I don't want to look at this. It's disgusting. And I don't really need to be told. But I, the 10-year-old, the not a dentist, um, doesn't need to be told by you, the middle-aged, experienced professional, anything about my mouth, because I'm clever enough that I can work that I can uh, work this out for myself, and therefore I don't need to have a lesson that involves looking at this disgusting view. So I'm just going to look up at the ceiling and pretend I'm looking, and I had no idea that you could see where someone was looking by <laughs> the direction. <laughs> of their eyes and so he knows that I'm not looking and that I'm just brazenly lying to him and then fast forward a few years I'm now 15 or so and um, there's a, school, a, a production of a school play at the end of the year and um, I, I think the previous year I'd been on stage and um, the, the, the drama teacher who was uh, directing thought, no, I think that's enough of that. Let's have him behind the scenes this year. Well, actually, that turned out to be a mistake because I was in the wings where I had to basically give all the actors the props and 
put things on stage and take them off stage in between scenes. Mm -hmm. And so in between all of that, um, I was basically just wearing black in the darkness between the curtains where no one could see me and with nothing to do but watch what was going on. And that was that was all I was supposed to do. However, one of the actors had to talk to a character off stage, which meant that he turned into the wings and spoke straight to me. And in the rehearsals, I was doing all kinds of things behind the curtains, like pulling stupid faces, acting mm-hmm. out ludicrous scenarios when he was trying to be serious. And... And one time I completely distracted him and he said, how am I supposed to do this when there's so much nonsense going on behind this? And the, the the drama teacher who had no idea I was doing all this was understandably very angry, hauled me out from the curtains, brought me to the front of the stage, um, gave me a piece of her mind. And in my head, I thought... Um, I still find this funny... And she can't know that because it's inside my head. So I just stand here while she's saying all these words. And I'm not going to carry on doing this because I actually like the teacher and I don't want to ruin this for her. So I'm actually (laughs) going to stop and do what she wants me to do, which is not continue with my behaviour. But I'm still going to continue to find it funny because her demand was twofold. One, stop doing this. Two, change your attitude to think that actually what you're doing is not funny and is very stupid and should not have happened. But I was thinking, no, I'm only going to do half of those things. I'm not going to carry on with the action, but I'm going to continue to think that it was hilarious and well worth it. And suddenly she says to me, and you can wipe that smirk off your face. And internally I say to myself, how, how can she see that? How does she know that I'm still enjoying this and laughing? And that was the day when I learnt that you can convey things with body language and that, you know, if the corners of your mouth turn up, it suggests that you're enjoying something, etc., etc. So basically, right up into my teenage years, I was... I was not fully, uh, I, I, or rather, I was completely unaware of how the internal can be communicated, even if you don't literally go through the motions of explicitly saying it out loud so that there is unambiguous uh, comprehension of the situation that is acknowledged from the other party. Um, but ev- even mm, right mm. up to this day, I'm still still only just really getting up to speed with so so is that true of you for other people or did you just think that you were an impenetrable fortress of brilliance and genius or do you and did you find it difficult and do you to read other people's reactions I'm not sure I understand the question. Are you asking did I fail to read other people and therefore I assumed that no one could read me? That's Part of the question, yeah. Probably. And then the other part of the question would be, as in, I'm, I'm not elaborating because I think that's pretty much it distilled. And then I'm, I assume the other part of the question is, um, did I think that I was somehow special in being better at fortifying my inner world? Mm-hmm from prying eyes or and, and other people were just not good at it therefore they had to be 
I didn't know to use these words, but they had to be congruent, whereas I could be incongruent and get away with it. Is that the other part of the question? Uh, yep. Uh, possibly. <laughs> and um, and what, how about now? How do, do you find it difficult to read people? And does that make a... Uh, is that problematic? No, I've found that over time, both deliberately making an effort to get better and picking up things without having to deliberately make the effort um, is, is much easier. But then, I mean, I would say that for uh, probably for most people, like, I would say that for me as a teenager, I was oblivious to um, people being able to read incongruence and I was extremely I, I i i struggled extremely to read other people sometimes and so therefore the transformation up until this point has been quite big but i'd say for anyone that the the same transformation happens from when they're a teenager up to when they're an adult it's just it's much smaller because most people are probably intuitively much better at it than me that's interesting. I mean, being an only child as well, I think will have had some impact on that because I think maybe you learn a lot more quickly when you're around children at home and, you know, when you're um, competing with your siblings to for a parental, you know, um, input and attention. So I think, I think, you know, you learn lots of different ways very quickly when you're young, when you have siblings and maybe not so much when you don't. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think humans can be purposefully incongruous, um, you know, and they, some people like to give mixed messages and some people don't know they are. And some people aren't sure what their feelings on something are. People obviously lie. People, uh, you know, twist the truth to try and not hurt feelings. So, you know, con congruity in the therapy room is all about, um, um, you know, using your authentic self and, and true self um and obviously he did say when appropriate it's it's not about expressing all of your thoughts and feelings um when you're a therapist but it is about being able to at least recognize the emotions that are coming up for you and when appropriate expressing those to your your therapy client um what do you want me to hit you with the epiphany go on then the thing that that I can say now that is a huge benefit is that because I used to struggle with that, but then at the same time, I also used to think that I was somehow better than everyone else at fortressing my inner world, which mm -hmm. obviously I wasn't. And then I discovered shock and horror. I'm actually not good at that because the dentist and the drama teacher have um, shattered that illusion. Mm -hmm. um, and then... From that point, going on to eventually try to understand better the ways in which people are congruent or incongruent and how you can notice that and so on, means that now um, I, it, it, it's possibly easier for me than most people. I wouldn't be able to say that for sure because how could I possibly know? But it might be even if it's not, it's it's easy for me now. It seems, it feels easy for me now to see mm -hmm. when other people are being incongru incongruent and to know the difference between 
congruence and incongruence, which means that reading when I read it, when I read these pages of the book for the first time, um, that's why I'm saying they stuck out to me so much. And I wonder if someone was just that has never really had to or gone through the same process that I was kind of forced to go through, would they find themselves more easily slipping into being incongruent with someone and not noticing that they're doing that? And would they more easily be fooled, or not fooled, but uh, um, maybe fooled by someone else's incongruence without really noticing? Hmm... So I I saw something recently on television um, and it was a guy telling a story on... He's an actor, he's very good, he's in loads of stuff, uh, English actor, name completely escapes me, it'll probably pop into my head later. But he was talking about something called the delusion of omnipotence and apparently it's something that all young men, teenage men um, and children suffer with. It's the idea that we are inherently better than others and have like a higher level of skill and a higher level of um, an ability to, like you were describing, mask what we think and feel. And this leads us to be able to, um, or this leads us to believe that our lies will not be recognised. And I think it's in a, a similar kind of an area that, you know, the idea that people can't, you know, read your body language or pick up on cues from your facial expressions seems to fit in with that. And uh, this guy that was talking about it was was talking about um, how it's very normal for young people to go through that, especially young men. Um, and and actually, the you know, the, the process of growing up and becoming an adult is about shedding that and kind of finding congruity, if that be a word, and being able to kind of express themselves openly and honestly and discover that they aren't kind of the center of the universe and that actually at a certain point if you if you don't um if you if you aren't able to kind of shed those beliefs and those behaviors that you're that you're kind of engaging in whereby you hold yourself above others that's a kind of a a route into that manipulation and in the extreme psychopathic kind of way of being as an adult so in answer to your question do i think that um do i think that can you rephrase it james um if you have to, if you're not very good at either or rather if you if you think that you're good at fortifying your inner world and then the illusion is shattered when someone reveals to you that you're not and you have to change your worldview on that basis or you think that and or you are not very good at expressing your inner world when you want to or reading someone else's, whether they are trying to share it or doing it or not doing it intentionally. So just whatever situation you come from, there's there's some kind of lack of skill and you transcend to having a better skill at that surely you're then um if you if you get better at reading other people then you get better at understanding when you're yourself slipping into incongruence whereas someone else might not be so um, consciously aware of it because they've never had to be and therefore it's easy for them to slip into incongruence 
without noticing that they're doing it because they don't need to really be consciously aware of it. They've never had to. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think that that sounds right. I wouldn't be able to give you the the, the research on this specific topic. Um, sounds like a very interesting area, but I know that from personal experience, as you deal with people in authority who don't seem to have, you know, um, compassion or consideration for those around them, the colleagues, people they work with, I often find that their facial expressions and their body language. Um, are completely incongruent with what they're saying. I can think of a chief executive. Yes, I can say this. I can think of a chief executive that I've worked with for a big NHS organisation whose um, message verbally was anti-bullying, inclusion, positivity, kindness, um, but their body language and their the expressions they were pulling with their face were just totally incongruous with this. The the <laughs> What they were saying was, do as I say, do as I say, because you don't know what you're doing and I know what I'm doing. They were not, they were not about inclusion and openness and listening and, you know, anti-bullying. They just weren't. Um, so I think people can get away with it for a long time. I think, you know, there are obviously conditions, you know, such as, you know, uh, autistic spectrum, but where people might really struggle with that and have to learn that. And then I think there are people who will maybe have some kind of emotional or trauma related um, problem and situations that they've been through that they aren't they aren't able to feel safe being congruous so so yeah i mean it's a bit of a mixture with that one so i couldn't give you a really clear answer sorry james that's no, let me just brief briefly go back to uh, me as a 15 year old so i've just the, i've just completely brought the rehearsal of this play to a screeching halt with my self-centered stupidity and everyone's irritated because they've had to stop the rehearsal and they all, all, all everyone has to wait for the teacher to explain to me that my stupidity is a hindrance to every single other person and I need to understand that so that I don't do it again and in my head I'm thinking this is all I'm okay fine I get the message that I don't want I'm not going to ruin this for everyone but I'm still enjoying this tee hee hee this is hilarious and thinking that that is a completely guarded secrets the my inner world of hilarity is impenetrable and then the teacher says to me and you can wipe that smirk off my face off your face and in an instant, I realised that my inner world is actually visible because I'm. It translates to facial expressions and things that I'm not aware of. So that meant that instantly I got the message that you can't just have this ridiculous extreme opposite between I'm going to pretend to be sensible, but inside I'm going mm-hmm. to have a party. Um, I, but However, a more watered-down version of that, fast forward 10 years, and now let's say I'm working in an office, and and it doesn't have to be an office, I could be at a party or something, but something where there are kind of... There's, a, there's an unwritten social code that everyone follows. Like, for example, I don't know, you, uh, you don't bring your 
emotional baggage to a business meeting or you don't constantly criticize the host of a party or there's all these kind of like unwritten rules and you kind of play along with them and in those situations I those are the kind of ones I'm thinking about where from time to time it's as if like if if I was making this into a film and I'm at a party I would, I would, you know, pause the action and give some kind of filter, like it suddenly goes black and white, so that I can, uh, so that the 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 viewer can understand that we're going into my internal world or whatever it is, the device that we're using, and suddenly I'm aware of the unwritten code. I'm suddenly aware that the rule here is that the host must not be criticised or uh, the boss must not be contradicted or whatever. And I'm suddenly aware that this means that I'm ne- in order to ob- obey that rule, I now have to act and put on a facade and play a part because honestly, I think that there is something worth criticising or honestly, I think the boss is making a mistake or something like that. And in those situations, I suddenly find myself kind of like monitoring incongruence like I'm sitting there thinking I just said the thing that I don't believe because I was playing by the rules therefore I'm incongruent Uh, everyone around me is nodding and agreeing to something in other words if everyone around you is nodding and agreeing to something you might be it might, it's perfectly understandable that you might think, oh, everyone agrees with this. <laughs> Contrast that with sitting there thinking, well, I'm nodding and agreeing in incongruence because everyone else is doing that, but I know that internally I'm not doing it. So probably everyone else is internally not doing it. So I'm probably, I'm possibly not the only incongruent person in the room. Um, contrast that with thinking, oh, I am the odd one out. I think A, but I say B, everyone else says B, they probably think B as well, I'm different. Do you know, this is a really interesting area and we've definitely sort of taken a meander away from Carl Rogers' book, but I think this is a fascinating area and you've kind of sort of nudged me into remembering, well, I I don't really need to remember because it's something I'm quite conscious of all the time. So, in that I definitely am someone, and many of many of us probably are, I don't think this is an uncommon thing, who sits in a room watching uh, for people's reactions that are incongruous to kind of have a, have a usually enjoyable, but sometimes quite uncomfortable internal conversation with myself about why, you know, why. Why is someone giving someone else praise when you can tell that, they don't really believe the things they're saying about this person. They don't really think that whatever it is that they've done or however they look or, you know, whatever they've said is interesting or beautiful or exciting or, you know, challenging or, you know, original. Um, and and uh, in fact, in, in large groups of people, so at the moment I'm in this course with 23 people, something I know that I do and, and have a bit of a, I don't know, it's kind of, it's like a hobby almost is so, is rather than facing the person at the front who's speaking, face myself so I can see the room as well and see how people are reacting to things and see what they think of it. And at the moment, 
the the teacher that we've got is very is a very interesting character and they have a lot of stories to tell but also there's a lot of content on this course and so I'm looking around the room to sort of read who is getting bored of the stories who is getting irritated by the stories and I think perhaps there's a lot of people who are less good at hiding what they're thinking and feeling and it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be saying the opposite but there's a kind of like you say an unwritten rule you don't you don't sit in a room and and you know um judge people who are trying to help you 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 know you you talk to them you engage with them you you take part but yeah i think this is a this is a very interesting area and i think it's something that there aren't any real cut and dry rules about how you're meant to behave and what you're meant to do um but congruity is is really or being congruous is just about being genuine saying what you're thinking and feeling rather than hiding it for whatever reasons or or um ignoring it but that's the thing that the you, you say there aren't any rules for how you're supposed to be but kind of like yeah, this this chapter is talking about a psychotherapist and a client but later on in the book um a lot of it is about learnings from psychotherapy that can just be taken out of the therapy room into real life which is kind of where how the the, the premise of this whole podcast from the beginning and so you say that there aren't really any rules, but Carl Rogers is basically saying there is a rule. Be congruent. Yes, but I'm talking about in, in day-to-day living. I'm saying, so for example, that there's a hard and fast rule pretty much in most countries across the entire globe is that you're not violent towards other people unless you're protecting yourself. That is a hard and fast rule. It's enshrined in law. It's enshrined in all the religious texts, basically. So it's to me, that's a hard and fast rule. Now, when it comes to do you have to say exactly what you think and must your facial expressions and body language be congruent with what it is that your internal world is, you know, you know, we all have these internal conversations. Do, do the two things have to match up? There's no hard and fast rules about that. No, but he's saying that there are. In the therapy room, James, we were talking, you were talking um, no, about... No, but I think later on... The- I think later on in the book he does say I think he I'm pretty I'm now because I haven't read on like I I read the whole book 2 years ago mm-hmm. and at the moment I'm rereading but I'm rereading just the bits relevant to what we're about to discuss so I haven't read on but I'm pretty sh- like I seem if I had to gamble I would gamble that my memory tells me later on in the book he basically says and all of these things probably apply to real life as well. Therefore, mm-hmm. if congruence is really useful in the therapy room, congruence is also really useful in the professional meeting. Yes, in but he's school, not... in absolutely, absolutely social. We know that parties we know that what we're talking about is the you know is the evidence and the ideas and the um, ethos about the best way to get the most out of life to be the happiest to have the best relationships we know that but there isn't in normal society hard and fast rules about these things you know okay yeah but i that i'm wondering if that if what carl rogers is basically saying is there can be rules and i'm saying what they should be yes and that's why i like i like carl rogers because he challenges me 
to not be the person sitting in the corner judging, mm, this guy is so boring, I don't really believe that story, he's wasting our time, doesn't he look stupid? But at the same time going, my God, you're so interesting, your stories are so fantastic, don't you look great today? Oh, I'm really, you know, having... You know, like to say, you know, I should be, if, if I'm thinking, okay, these, there's too many stories that are going on, I should be the person to say, put my hand up and say, look, I really appreciate you telling us these stories, but I haven't got any concept, any grasp of the concepts that you're teaching. Yeah, please, can we just go back to this and actually get on with the teaching? Would you mind? Um, but no one in the room is going to do that. So I feel like you can you can take these principles and you can learn to, hold on, sorry. I'm having so many issues here with, let me just... Dear listener, whilst uh, James deals with his issues, which could take some time for, they are manyfold. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about the book itself and about how much you could get out of reading this book. Now, it's not one of those texts that you have to read cover to cover. It's not really like reading a story. You can actually pick it up, read a chapter, dip in and out of it and put it down for a few months, come back to it. But I highly recommend you getting this book. Just to remind you, it's Carl Rogers on Becoming a Person. So I just wanted to react to that, what you said just before that, which if I give that... So, like, I said that <laughs> I said that when, when I was a teenager, I had no idea about incongruence, mm-hmm. and then I realised that you couldn't be so stark. But then in experience of life over the subsequent decade... Um, I would often be in situations where it was clear that people were being incongruent and I might suddenly become aware of that. But it was usually, uh, uh, from most of that time, it was usually me thinking, I'm being incongruent. These other people are saying the same thing that I'm saying, but I'm only saying it because I think they want me to say it or because they're saying it. But I never then jumped over the next hurdle which is to say that therefore, presumably, possibly, at least, I'm not the only incongruent person in the room. I stayed behind that hurdle for a long time thinking, I am the only incongruent person in the room. All of those other people are probably congruent. Let's even take out the word probably. It's just an an unsaid assumption in in my internal world that these other people are all congruent, And so if they say that they think this is a great idea, they truly think it is. And if I say it's a great idea, I know it's not, but I know that I can't say that and I'm the only incongruent person, therefore I'm different and special. And then along came you telling me, actually, with most things, there's nothing different and special about (laughs) me and isn't everyone like that. And And that combined with a number of other factors and then leading up to the reading of this book the first time, that was what brought me to think, well, if I'm feeling incongruence here, then I'm at least going to entertain the possibility that one or all of the other people are feeling incongruence here. And so that, but that's just identifying it. And now it's more like I'm, uh, I'm moving into how to be congruent. Because what you just said... You're right. You're not going to if if you're in a meeting and someone's just said something and everyone in the room agrees and it's all cordial and fun and you're passing around the tea and the biscuits mm-hmm. and nothing's mm-hmm. going wrong. You're it's very difficult to just 
slam you, you don't have to do the, the do the physical act with the biscuits but i'm going to you don't you don't have to slam the biscuits down smashing some of them you know getting crumbs all over the table and all over the floor and saying nope I feel incongruent here. I think this is a stupid idea and I suspect that I may not be the only... Or it's a possibility that I'm not the only one who thinks this is a stupid idea but is saying it's a good idea because, yeah. I mean, you could do that and you might actually have a good reaction but it's a gamble. Um, I'm sure there are ways, though, of being congruent without making everyone else in the room feeling feel like what you're doing yes. is suddenly becoming yes. a threat. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and congruence is not about aggressively speaking your mind whenever you have something that is counter to what someone else is saying to you. That, I mean, and, and I know your example was kind of farcical, but at the same time, you know, let's be quite clear about this. Um, and, and then I've had a mentor for many, many years, Kath, um, who, who's in Kath. <laughs> ACAP, um, who is an exceptional nurse and she's a, she's a really warm-hearted person. And she taught me just by observing her that there's, you know, literally hundreds of different ways that you can challenge someone, disagree with someone, um, you know, and, and it not turn into some kind of uncomfortable conflict. Um, but also systemic therapy, something else I'm really interested in, which is also called family therapy. Um, uh, has this idea of curiosity. So something that's important to note at this stage is that when ideas and thoughts and um, reactions pop into our mind as um, in word forms, in, in ideas that, that we, we feel we should express um, to be congruent, to be genuine, to be um, honest... It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily pop into our mind in a clear, concise, adult, calm, well-mannered, and logical way. So, in order for us to um, be congruous, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are sitting there going, "Oh, shut the fuck up, James! Why did you say that? That was annoying. Look at how you're sitting. You're really irritating. Why did you say that today? Your tone is annoying. That laugh is irritating. I'm sorry, I'm being congruous, James. I'm being congruous. I'm, this is what I'm thinking." But, but as, as a intelligent or as a thoughtful, that's a better word, as a thoughtful adult, it's our role to take these internal swirls of thoughts, ideas, feelings, um, uh, reactions, and put them out there into the world, uh, into the world honestly, genuinely, when appropriate, without pretending that that's something that we either agree or disagree without pretending basically and that 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 process that attempt to be genuine to be um your true articulate self is as good as you 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 can that's as good as it gets that is um being authentic now it doesn't mean you say absolutely everything you think and feel and you definitely don't have to be violent with the biscuits. Well, okay, so that's congruence. And I think um, the, the, basically what Carl Rogers is saying is for therapy to be effective, the therapist needs to be congruent 
I think bottom line is Carl Rogers' view. If the therapist is incongruent and the therapist sits there going, oh, that's really interesting, when the therapist <laughs> himself or herself is incredibly bored, um, then it's going to be firstly picked up by the by the client and secondly unhelpful overall in achieving yeah, any yeah, kind yeah. of therapeutic outcome absolutely absolutely james <laughs> the next one's to do with unconditional positive regard so we can probably just whiz through that because i think um, i look at the shock on dan's face i feel free to spend an hour talking about unconditional positive regard i just feel like we've already talked about unconditional positive regard in many previous episodes in depth I just have this to say. <laughs> UPR is Carl Rogers UPS. No, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. I'll try that again. UPR is Carl Rogers USP. That's better. That's I did get that. Even though, like, basically, I, I hate all, um, what do you call them? Anagram, acronym, when you use letters instead of words. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. when you say I'm O O H, I'm out of home. O M G, I can't remember. But well, no, it's more like like um, uh, we need to we need to get some KPIs recorded with the uh, PMF team so that we can move ahead with the NGO TFI LSB. And I said, and that even if I know what all of those things are, in the moment that someone says them, I don't know what they're saying. I just dislike acronym. Acronym, that's the word, isn't it? Yeah, acronym. Yeah, I dislike acronyms. So basically, when you just said um, uh, UPR is Carl Rogers UPS or FedEx or whatever. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't, I did not hear American Postal Delivery Service. I heard you. SP because UPS USP it doesn't matter it's nothing I knew what I knew that what you were saying is that unconditional positive regard is his unique selling point I knew that you were not saying unconditional positive regard is his FedEx yeah it's the United <laughs> States postal stuff yeah um, I, I mean in my in my <coughs> sorry in my defense if I need to defend myself I wrote it very late at night last night when I realized I'd come up with a zinger and I wrote it down wrong, so I read it wrong. Oh, you actually read it, you wrote down your joke and read it out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you, the wool was pulled over my eyes. I didn't realise that you were reading out your joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one, though, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's Carl Rogers' unique selling point. It's, it's his thing, and it's the thing that I think will last eternally with therapists, unconditional positive regard. You know, actually, no matter what your your patient or your client has said or done you have to regard them as a worthy human being who who deserves respect and who deserves time and who deserves to get better and be given the benefit of the doubt up to a point and to be given another opportunity to do right and to get things right and to be given all the help and the support that you would give someone who um uh, who, who 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 more traditionally people would feel compassion towards so it's about everyone having an opportunity to be supported on a scale of naught to ten how indignant will you be if i move on to the third thing james i i won't be indignant i feel you're right we've spoken about 
uh, unconditional positive regard a lot. But it is a theme and a thread throughout all of his work. So the third one is kind of a nuanced mm -hmm. thing. It's a subtle thing. He says the third condition we may call empathic understanding. And he goes on to describe it as being the difference between saying, um, I understand what is wrong with you. He said, that's a statement that is not empathic understanding. It's in other words, I am a divine intellectual judge of character. I am an experienced, all-knowing professional, and you are below me, and with my experience that you do not have, I can observe you and come to intelligent conclusions that you are not able to come to because you are less than me. So, and yet all of that is disguised as if it's empathy. Like, yes, I understand what's wrong with you. <laughs> and another one that he says is wrong is, uh, I too have experienced your trouble and I reacted very differently. As if to say, well, if only you'd done what I did, then you wouldn't have made the stupid choice. I made the sensible choice because I'm better than you. But does he have a good example? When the therapist can grasp the moment-to-moment -moment experiencing which occurs in the inner world of the client as the client sees it and feels it without losing the separateness of his own identity in this empathic process, then change is likely to occur. So he doesn't... He doesn't I can't see a, um, a, a, like a, like within quotes, a comedy example, but it's basically, he says, that what the, what the client is looking for is for the therapist to understand how it feels and seems to be me. So not how I seem from the outside of a lofty, intelligent, judgmental therapist with degrees and diplomas, but you, with your knowledge, know how to make a happy choice and you, with your condescension, are looking at me thinking that I have made a sad choice because I do not have your knowledge and diplomas and therefore you judge me but because you're on a next level, a next plateau of intelligence, you also know and understand why I've made my sad choice and can explain that to me in simple words that simple me will understand that is not empathy that is not going to help a therapeutic process, what the, the client needs to believe is that however clever you may be, however much more you may know about this subject, right now you can understand what it is to be me and my situation without assuming that what I did was wrong and that you would have done it better. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's about recognising some of the judgments we make and putting them to one side. It's about allowing the person to make their own mistakes but also explore their own thoughts and feelings and sensations and, and not holding on to judgments that might pop through our mind whilst the client is talking. Um, I think I think uh, like a more common day-to-day -day experience that we might have where you can show empathic understanding for someone in a really genuine way is, um, you know, classic. Everyone talks about this. It's 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 spoken of in, in many different um, places. But like people say, hey, how are you doing? And they someone says, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine. And 
you can tell that your friend or this person you're speaking to isn't fine. There's just something you know. And it's about whether you then go, oh, cool, great, see you later. Or you stop and say, hey, you know, I'm I'm not sure that you are. I don't know whether you want to talk about it, but I'm sensing or I get the impression that you're not okay. You know, you, you actually look upset. You know, you look, what's going on? You know, do you want to talk about it? Let's go grab a coffee or know that I'm here if you do. Um, it shows that not only the question you asked in the first place, hey, how you doing, was genuine. You meant it, even if you said it in a sing-song, lark-like way, but but also that you will follow it up when you notice that something doesn't seem right. And it may well be that person doesn't want to speak about it, isn't even that pleased that you noticed it, but further along the day or further along, that person will value that. Um, and that, to me, is a really good clear example of empathic understanding i get accused of not being able to put myself in other people's shoes and i don't know i'm only relatively recently in life wondering about the difference between i think i understand you from looking at you and seeing the and noticing the patterns in your behavior to i want to feel what it is to be you and what you feel and those are two separate things. And one of them is potentially not empathy. It's, in fact, it's not, no, it's, the first one is not empathy, it's observation. Sorry, so, so, so say those again. I, 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 I think I, no, I misunderstood. Say it again, James. Okay, so first scenario, like I said, I, this, I, but I'm also kind of a little bit repeating myself here. I'm also aware of that. This is kind of what I said just now. So if you think this is boring repetition, we'll move on. Scenario number one, um, I look at you and with my logic and my ability to read patterns in the world, I can understand why you do the stupid things that you do. So let's say um, you're constantly late and I'm never late, and I could say, oh, oh, I understand that you don't have the ability to conceptualise um, over time, therefore, it's not like you're trying to be late, it's just that you're different to me. Potentially, that's not empathy. Potentially, empathy is how can I understand what it is to be you and to not conceptualize over time? Yeah, maybe. Like one of them is a kind of a um, an internal, <clears throat> intellectual, like cognitive function, like a trying a kind of like a trying to understand someone in an intellectual way and. And, and another way is actually to sort of try and be there with that person, like caring enough about what their experience is that you're not judging it, which, you know, that's a good example that you've given there because you are continuously berating me um, for my inability to understand the space-time continuum and fit into it in the way that you seem comfortably to be able to do all the time and, and it's something that for myself I struggle with massively I, I I have no understanding how people can 
lay their head down on a bed on the pillow at night and fall asleep and have no understanding at how the same time each morning they can get out of that bed, do that. And that affects everything, all, all the, the entire range of time-related activity. You know, this, this course that I'm on this week and having to be down the road a couple of miles away at nine o'clock each morning and you know and 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 stick to all the timings of that and and when i was working shifts as a nurse like almost impossible how how the hell do people do that how do you go to sleep at the same time how do you sleep when you're meant to sleep and therefore how do you function as in a standardized way each day it's just that strikes me as completely impossible i've tried to understand it i've tried to do it i can't do it so you know sh shitty comments about that or sarcastic comments or assumptions they don't help and they don't make me feel um, cared for or respected or understood. Okay, I'm glad you said that because this has made it clearer for me. And I, I should have given, when I gave two scenarios, I should have given three scenarios. So scenario one, I'm always on time. You're never on time. I'm correct. You're wrong. Correct is what you should be. Wrong is what you should not be. I don't understand why you're wrong all the time. Why can't you just be right like me? I don't understand you. Change yourself. It's not my problem. It's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility. You're still not doing it. That's further adding to the problem. Get better at this or I will completely reject you as a human being. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is oh, I realise that total rejection is not going to get me far in life because I'll end up just rejecting every other human being eventually. I'll find something in everyone to reject. So this person I'm not going to reject, but they are always late. However, I'm going to observe them and I'm going to notice all the patterns and I'm going to say, um, OK, you're always late. I intellectually understand that the way you think about time is different to the way I think about time, which explains why you're always late. And therefore, now I understand that. I'm still early. You're still late. There's nothing we can do about it. But I'm not going to reject you. I'm just going to let you know that I understand that we're different. That is different to the first scenario, but it's not empathy. Empathy is... I want to know what it's like to be you and therefore to understand what it feels like to have to make a decision about the future when you can't conceptualise time so that I fully know what it's like for you now to be late, which is completely different to me because I was able to conceptualise time before. And I don't know how you do that. Like, I don't know how... Like, I just don't know what it's like to not conceptualise... An easier example in that situation... You, like, for example, here in Casablanca, put me on any street corner and I know exactly where I am and I know everything that's around me and I know how to get everywhere that I want to go. Some people, even though they may have lived here for two years, put them on any street corner and they might say, where are we? Or are we going the right way? Or isn't it that way? I simply do not understand. I cannot empathise. I don't know what it's like to be to have that perspective on the world. I don't know I I don't know what it must feel like. I mean, I guess I I've there've been a few times in my life where I've not had a clue where I was and I've I've had the feeling of 
I am lost. I've had that feeling. So I guess I can under, I can I can imagine that that is the feeling that the other person has. But but it's but but can I actually empathize when the sequence of thoughts and feelings that that person's having is something that never happens to me? How can I get to be them? You've muddied the waters somewhat by giving a second example, but I do I do understand. Yes, okay. So in your first sort of run through there, you talked about um, almost like being irritated by a person who's different to you and and rejecting them because of that. The second one you talked about intellectualizing what was going on to be able to have you no know, your own personal understanding that you could be settled with about that person's behaviour not being right. And the third one was kind of like an openness to try and understand that person and try and understand what that experience might be like of life that is something that you find really easy perhaps or just comes as second nature or natural to you and yet you are starting to realize that perhaps there's something about that person's behavior that isn't um isn't a character flaw but is in fact something that's a bit more complex than that or isn't a purposeful behavior or a disrespect to you and your way of being. Okay, yeah, and crucially, both myself and Carl Rogers are saying that the second is not empathy. The first is obviously not empathy. The complete rejection is obviously not empathy, but the second is not empathy either. Only the third is empathy. Yeah, and there's this lovely video which I will send you at some point. It's just a short animation about what empathy is, and it's 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 this um, and it talks about sitting with the person and saying this must be really difficult. Do you want to tell me what it's like, or do you just want me to be here with you? And um, and in essence, that's probably the very crux or the nub is it of therapy being with the person whilst they're experiencing really difficult things without having to judge them but perhaps being curious about what it's like for that person and it isn't about you learning about that person so you can fucking understand them it's actually about being there with that person to support them whilst they are there um however i would just like to add to all of this i think you can still judge i'm not sure that and I'm not just saying this because I judge you, Dan, mm-hmm. for being less than me because mm-hmm. you... And let me put it differently. I accept your existence as a human being. Oh, thank you. I, um, I can, I can recognise the patterns and I can intellectually um, declare my understanding that there's a difference between being you and being me in terms of being able to conceptualize over time so it's not like I'm just putting my hands up and saying I don't understand I don't want to understand and I completely reject you it's a case of okay I understand that we're coming from different places I struggled I don't I struggle to fully feel what you feel if if it's something I've never felt or that I rarely feel it's difficult for me to to simulate that feeling in the moment, to really empathise with what is it to be Dan trying to conceptualise over time. I just don't think I'm actually empathising. And I'll watch your little video and see if that sheds any light on how I might do that and how I might actually be successful in empathising. But I still think I can judge. It is better to be on time and it is worse to be late. Consistently being on time makes me actually better 
in a correct and objective way and you actually worse in an objective way and that if it is possible for you to learn to not be late then you will improve and that is also an objective thing like you won't just be a different and equally valid person you will be a better person mm-hmm. you will have you will have gone through a process of self-improvement and you will have an additional quality to yourself that you did not have when you were always late and therefore judgment is possible sorry I don't, why is judgment possible i'm a bit confused because you basically have a choice it's if you were completely incapable of knowing that you were always late and of knowing that you could do something about it or even trying to work out if you could do something about it you would you just couldn't have that knowledge then there was a part of let's just make it simple there was a part of your brain missing it's literally been gouged out with a spoon therefore judgment is not relevant here because if i say to you i'm better than you because i can turn up on time you're less than me then the res- the, the response is well you didn't have a chunk of your brain gouged out with a spoon so you're comparing apples with oranges so why don't you just shut up however if we both have different brains but you don't have something gouged out with a spoon you just you 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 just have a a a different starting point to me but you still have a fully functioning brain and you are able to go through personal development to get to a place where you are no longer late no matter how difficult it is for you you're able to get to that place and let's say you achieve it and it's hard for you but one day you get to a place where you're never late because you've just changed your patterns of behavior you've learnt new behavior and you've successfully done it i'm saying that in that situation it's very possible to introduce judgment and to say that you now have a quality that is better than how you were before which is very different to saying that how you were before was totally acceptable how you are now is totally acceptable and they are absolutely equal there is no hierarchy there is no judgment they are just different and difference is beautiful and i love it <laughs> absolutely okay um <clears throat> so so um any questions on that, James? You've got nothing to say to that? No reaction to that? No, I mean, I, I think for you, it's a process. Um, you know, people can be really frustrating, but we don't have to judge them for it. And, and the more we... But I've just, I've just, in the best way I can, I've just described why I think judgment is appropriate and why potentially, air quotes, you should judge. And I'm interested to know what you think about me trying to articulate that. Yeah, listen, I don't think you art- articulated it well. I think you muddied the water again. I don't really understand how you've justified judging. I think this is something that you need to take up with yourself. Um, now, let me, tr- okay, let me just try it one more time. And if I fail this time, then I will definitely take that as I'm not able to communicate, not you're too stupid to give an answer. Is, are we okay with that? Yes, we're okay with that. Okay, so a human being who has brain damage is potentially not able to overcome their lateness. So 
that's one situation that I'm just going to cast to one side and not talk about. You, Dan, do not have brain damage. I think it is perfectly possible that you could learn to not be late for things. Therefore, I think judgment is appropriate. In other words, I'm not going to judge the person who has brain damage. It's futile because I'd be comparing apples with oranges. Whereas you, even though you're different to me, um, we're not comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing oranges and lemons, which are both citrus fruits. And I'm not going to take this metaphor too far because I'm not sure it's possible for a lemon to become an orange or whatever. But, <laughs> but I'm saying that you are able to learn to change your behaviour. And if you did that, whether it's easy or difficult, if in two years' time you've learned to never be late, I think that it's possible to judge that as being better than the place you came from. I'm saying that you can judge that as an improvement, an enhancement in the quality of your character. You've gone from something that was bad to something that is better, and I'm happy to give you a certificate of merit to reward the hard work, and I'm happy to colour it in, and I'm happy to put gold stickers on it. And I'm saying that that is therefore judgment, because if I were to not judge, I would say, OK, you've gone through this arduous, tedious process of changing your behaviour, you've jumped over through all these hoops, and you've completely transformed yourself into a person who is now able to be on time all the time, and you're never late. But I don't see that as being any better than how you were before. Before you were a beautiful and valid human, now you're a beautiful and valid human. Those two things are equal in value to me. So the fact that you've gone through this process to supposedly improve yourself, I reject the notion of improvement and judgment, and I couldn't care less whether you're the person you are now or the person you are before. I just unconditionally positively regard you. And I'm saying that is absolute bullshit, and that you should judge, and that the previous scenario is better and I want to see if you agree with me or not. I totally disagree. You're talking about judging over, over understanding <laughs> so the idea is even if you, you even if you do all of the activities so that you understand a person like me in essence you're only understanding a person like me so you can judge them and then prove that you were right all along it's, you're not really wanting to understand because understanding would take away from that the need for judgement uh, the the need for that and um you know if if a person who is always late to something is able to change their behavior over time that is so offensive and abhorrent to you then y yeah okay fine you might say that that is um empirically better than being late but hold on are you saying therefore that it's only better to me so let's say you you reluctantly change your behavior to be on time just to please me because you just want to shut me up because you don't want to hear me complaining about your lateness anymore. Are you saying that no, there's no improvement in yourself? Are no, you saying that no, if you no, go through that no, tedious no, process, no, the no, only objective improvement no, is in my wrong no, point of view and in your no, point of view, there is zero improvement? No, that is not what I'm saying. But what you're doing is you are... <laughs> taking <laughs> your experience as being more valid than my experience and saying because... Because I think lateness is worse than being on time. Yeah, but, like, you know, you, you're making a kind of an assumption that you are flawless when... Or, no, or no, 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 no. I think no, being stop. late is worse. No. I don't think oh, okay. I'm better 
inherently. Yes. Yeah, but that is what you're saying. You're saying because I do this and you don't. I mean, there could be a hundred things that I do and you don't, which I could judge you for, but I am not judging you for those things. In fact, if anything... Why not? If I'm doing something because badly... I'm, because I'm trying to understand you. I'm trying to understand you as a human being who is quirky and unique and individual and as exactly as you are without trying to change you if you don't want to or can't change. You know, if, if Oh, I see. So essentially you're saying don't step in and try to fix things from our previous episode. Or just don't be an arsehole about things that people <laughs> struggle with. And um, that's the take-home message for today. Don't be an arsehole. That's the take-home <laughs> message for today, James. But, uh, but, let's, but let's say there's a, there's, a, there's a very constructive way that someone who's not me, who's someone who's, better than, who's objectively better than me, someone like, let's call her Linda, steps in and in a very friendly way that involves pouring you cups of tea and saying nice things to you, she takes you on a journey and shows you that oh, Dan, I think I know how to help you be on time for things, and I think you're going to really enjoy being on time for things. And I'm happy to do this for you. I'm not going to charge you or anything. I'm just, I just enjoy helping others, and I'm going to help you. And I think at the end of it, you'll, feel, you'll really feel that actually you have some added value in your life. And James doesn't have to have anything to do with him. We can both agree that he would be useless at helping you with this process, and I'm much better than him. Yes, if, you, if that were to happen and you were to go through that process, would you not think at the end of it, I have gained something of value? I've already said I've yes. I don't know why skill. you're banging on. I've already said yes, of course. Okay. For fuck's okay. sake, so therefore, James. Therefore, there is some kind of objective value to these things, which is yes, the same as saying there is judgment. No, it's not. Values and judgments are different things. Like, judgment is uh, putting yourself above someone and decreeing that what they are or what they're doing is not as good as what you are and you feel it should be. Adding value to life by making changes that improve the experience that you have of life and the relationships you have adds value. Value and judgment are not the same things. I listened to you and it kind of makes... It sounds like it makes sense when you say it, but I'm not sure what the difference is. I just don't know what the difference is because let's say you just make a change to your personality and you add value to yourself. As far as I'm concerned, that is better than before. Therefore, I judge now better before worse. It's a simple judge. The gamble and, comes and down. And, and that's why you have basically one friend. So... <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen of the listeners, I can just literally end this, this episode by saying thank you so much for bearing with James today. He really does try. He really does. He puts a lot of effort into being succinct and being witty and interesting and engaging. He really tries, and I value that about him. And I would just like to say to you, the listener... I have no idea what it's like for you to listen to me, and I don't care. <laughs> um, so from, from Hitchin, near Luton, it's goodbye from Daniel P. Brown in the private practice studio. And it's goodbye from Casablanca in Morocco. And are you going to sing us out? Um, what about... Love lift us up where we belong, where the...
Uh, no, I don't know the words. Where the eagle flies on a mountain high. Whoa, whoa, whoa. love lift us up where we belong. I think that really actually adds to the theme of non-judgment, you know. Now, I think love lifts us up to a position where we are both better people, better than we were before. And the comparison of those two things is very easy to judge. OK, well, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. From the ordinary boys, Preston. 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 From the ordinary boys.